series on uh, fear, and the title of the series is Sweet Dreams, What Keeps You Up at Night. And in this series, we've just been exploring the, the, the truth that all of us deal with fear to some level or another. And if we're not careful, that fear can shift our lives. It can cause us to live our lives differently than we should. It, it may keep you up at night. Uh, maybe that fear keeps you awake. Maybe that fear adjusts how you act or how you respond, but whatever it is, all of us can deal with fear. And, and that is not God's plan for us. That's not his best for us. His desire for us is to live a fear-free life in him and through him. And that's what his hope is for us. And I, I want to read the key verse for this series has been John chapter 14, verse 26 and 27. And this is the words of Jesus he's speaking here. And I'll read verse 26, then I would like us to read verse 27 together. It says in verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So, again, one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is not just to convict us of sin or to, to give us his gifts, uh, but it's also to rem remind us or bring to our remembrance all that Jesus has spoken and done so that our lives can be more aligned with his. Does that make sense? That's one of the things he does. And then he goes on to say this in verse 27. Let's read this together. It says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, Jesus says here, I'm giving you peace but I'm not just giving you peace like the world gives peace, because how many of you know the world offers us peace in all kinds of different ways, but it's false peace. But Jesus says, I'm giving you peace that's different than anything else you can find anywhere. It's my peace. I'm giving it to you so that you can live your life in peace without fear. And then he goes on to say, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, I've said this week after week, but I want you to get this in your spirit. Faith is the antidote to fear. We don't have to live in fear. But what we do is we apply faith to our lives. We grow in our faith. We learn to lean more closely into Jesus. We learn to know his heart. And as we apply it to our lives and we begin to look more like him, um, faith helps us overcome fear in our lives. So today we're, we're finishing the series up and the message is titled today, Simply Fear Not. And we're going to explore a passage of scripture in, in Isaiah chapter 41 and in the book of Isaiah, it's a prophetic book, and there's a portion of Isaiah that deals with current events. And the book of Isaiah was written around 700 uh, uh, B.C., but it, it was written partially for the people that were alive then, and then there's a portion of it that was prophetic for people that are to come. And so the portion we're going to look at today is actually written for people that weren't even a living yet. It was written for people a couple hundred years down the line. But it is so appropriate for us even today, um, over 2,000 years later, that I feel like I want to walk through this with you and, and help us explore this. Now, one of the things we have to understand about fear is that fear, uh, it, sh it can shift or shape the way we see reality. Now, it doesn't change reality, but it can shift the way we view it. So it gives us an improper perspective of our lives and of our value and ultimately of who God is. So what it does is, is fear comes along, and our fear seems huge, and it makes God seem small. But what God is trying to do as he speaks to his people in Isaiah chapter 41 through the prophet Isaiah, he's trying to help realign how they see themselves, how they see them circumstances, and how they see ultimately God. 
And so I want us to walk through this together. I want us to see what he's trying to do. Because I feel like even today, what God wants to do for us is help realign how we see ourselves, our circumstances, and ultimately God. So in verse, four, uh, verse 1 of chapter 41, it says this, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. And when it says, O coastlands, it's talking about the far reaches of the earth. So even to the coasts, everyone, it's trying to say all the expanse of humanity. Um, let the people renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Isn't that a rallying cry? Like, everybody come together for judgment. It's like, no, thank you, I'll pass, right? Like, I don't want judgment in my life. Verse 2 says, who stirred up the one from the east whom the victory meets at every step? He goes on to say, he gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with a sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from beginning? I, the Lord, the first and the, with the last, I am he. Now, when we look at this, this is somewhat cryptic. Because if you don't know the context, you look at it and go, okay, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But when we look at it in context, uh, remember, this was written in the 700s, but it's talking, foreshadowing, talking about a man named Cyrus the Great who would lead the Persian Empire. And so the Persian Empire, it was, um, it was terrifying to the other nations because the Persians were ruthless in how they treated nations they were trying to overtake. So they would many times give them an option. You can either, you can either um, give up, you can just you know, wave the white flag, or we will come in and everybody's going to die, basically. And they would torture, they would brutalize. It was, it was horrible. And so the news of the Persians would get out and the other nations, they trembled. And so this is foreshadowing. It's talking about what's to come. But in that day, the people of Israel had to see this, this wave coming that was the Persian Empire, led by Cyrus the Great. And they were terrified of what was going to happen. What did their future look like? What, what, what was going to happen to their kids? Um, were they going to be able to survive this? And many of us deal with those same kind of fears today. What's going to happen with our economy What's going to happen with the elections? What's going to happen with our future? What's going to happen with terrorism? Am I going to survive this? What does my job look like? What does my future look like? What does my bank account look like? And we deal with these kind of fears, and we're wondering, what is this going to look like, and what's going to happen? And so when we look at Isaiah, God is saying, he's speaking, he says, you know, you, you see Cyrus the Great being raised up, and the, the Persian Empire is, is flourishing, and it's taking over the world, and it's terrifying. You're afraid of Cyrus, you're afraid of the Persians, and you should be. But, but who, who has sovereignty over Cyrus? Who's the one that raises Cyrus up? Who's the one that allows the Persians to, to expand their territory? And it's me, it's God, that's what he says. You, you think he is sovereign? No, I'm sovereign. So what God is asserting is, even over human uh, humanity, God is sovereign, over over. The seas and the storms over creation, God is sovereign. So whatever it is we're afraid of, whatever it is we're dealing with, our God is sovereign. He's trying to assert his sovereignty to the nation of Israel and help them see who he is in that. And that last verse says, Who has performed and done this, calling this generation from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. 
It goes on to say in verse 5, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Listen to this. It says, Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong, which this sounds great, doesn't it? Because we rally together and we say, hey, we're, we're afraid, we're nervous. What do we do? We come together and we're going to strengthen each other. But what they've done is they've strengthened each other in the wrong ways. And it says in verse 7, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. And you're like, what in the world does this mean? And this is what happens. Fear comes their way. Um, uncertainty comes their way. They're not sure what's going to happen. And just like you, when this comes, they pray. They cry out to God and go, God, we need some help here. We can't do this on our own. Can you do something about this situation? And sometimes God doesn't answer as quickly as we would, as we would like, does he? Sometimes we cry out and go, God, I'm ready. And we don't hear anything. No, no, God, I'm talking like something's happening. You need to do something. And God doesn't answer. And we start getting nervous, don't we? And I really believe this is what happened with the nation of Israel. They cried out to the Lord and said, God, we need some help. And God didn't answer them like they wanted him to. And our natural response is to go, we got to fix this situation. I've got to take care of myself. I've got to do something about it. And this is what they did. They said, we got to do something. What are we going to do? Let's create another God. And so they took wood and they took different, um, different items and began to, to craft it and fasten it and, and turn it into a God that they could worship. And, and it says they fastened it with nails so that it could not move. They always had an idea where their God was because they had it fastened in one place, right? Not like our God who, who sometimes you can't get a hold of and sometimes he's difficult to reach, right? So at least their God was present. And that's what they did. They, they crafted a God that they could serve. Now we see this and we go, how petulant. What a bunch of kids, right? I can't believe they do that. They weren't mature in their faith like we are. They would turn to false gods. And they would call it good that they would do that. But this is what happens in our lives. Many times fear drives us to idolatry. And you go, well, that's ridiculous. I don't, first, I don't worship idols. I've never crafted a statue or, or made a, a wooden idol in my house. There's not a place for a shrine in my house. We don't do stuff like that. But I think we do, and we don't realize that's what we're doing. Because fear and idolatry are closely aligned. And, and it's really about us trusting in the wrong things. That's what fear and idolatry cause us to do. We, we start trusting in the wrong things. Now, it's not that we trust in bad things. But what idolatry is, is taking a good thing and it's making it a supreme thing. So it's not that we have an idol in our house that we bow down and worship, but what happens is we take good things in our lives and we make them supreme things. So we'll take things like our job or our family or our finances or our reputation and we'll make that the thing that we trust in, that we rely on when trouble comes instead of God. And what we've done is effectively made that an idol in our lives. Now, again, none of us bow down to a, an idol in our house probably, but I think regularly, if we're not careful, we bow down to false gods in our lives because idolatry is really just about redirecting our passions and redirecting our, our affection towards something besides God, our ultimate affection, our ultimate passion. Um, let, me, let me give you an example. When, when things come our way, we can rely on things that, that aren't God's best for us. Now, I'll, I'll give you an example. 
Um, last week, I got into a little bit of trouble from somebody because I talked about ice cream too much last week, okay? I love me some ice cream, let's be honest, okay? But um, I'm not going to talk about ice cream now. I'm going to talk about chocolate shakes, okay? So um, a few years ago, a few years ago, I was um, working at a church. I was an associate pastor at the church, and uh, my pastor and I didn't always see eye to eye about things. And now I know you go, well, shoot, pastors should, they're perfect, right? They always get along, they're always happy, and they're always smiling. That's what pastors are supposed to be. That's not always the case, okay? Uh, so my pastor and I, we, we didn't agree on some things privately. Now, publicly, everything was great, and there's no problems. I honored him, and it was good, and he was, you know, everything was fine. But privately, we would talk, and I'd go, I don't know if we should do that. And he, we disagreed on some things, and we just couldn't work some of that out. So one day, the, the conversation was a little more heated. And again, it was behind the scenes. Nobody knew about it. Um, and, and this is the thing. I don't say this in a prideful way. I know I was right. I know I was. But I was not righteous in my conversation with my pastor. I did not honor him. I did not honor his authority. I did not honor his place. Um, and I was right, but I was not righteous. Does that make sense? Some of you are like, no, that does not make sense. Because we can, we can win the argument but lose the battle, you know, and that was kind of where I was at. I was winning the argument, but I was ultimately losing because my heart was not right. And so anyway, we finished this conversation, and I wasn't fired. I mean, it wasn't horrible or anything, but I just, I was unhappy, um, and I was a little frustrated, and I, I needed to get out of the office, so I, I got in my car. And in, in Oklahoma and in Texas, and there's some in like Missouri or Arkansas, there's a place uh, called Brahms Ice Cream and Dairy Store. And yeah, somebody just got anointed over there. They're like, yes, Lord, Brahms, right? Um, so there's this place called Brahms Ice Cream and Dairy Store. And, and growing up, I literally could see the Brahms dairy from our house. Like it was like, well, I couldn't always see it. I could smell it from our house. Let me say it like that. So it was close to our house, man. It was just a staple with us growing up. So I leave the church that day, and I'm like, I just got to get to the office. So I'm driving, and somehow, mysteriously, magically, my car was driving itself to Brahms Ice Cream and Dairy Store. And, and in my mind, this is honest, honest to God, this is what I'm thinking, I need to go get a chocolate shake. And I'd already purposed in my heart, I'm not getting this baby shake. What I'm feeling right now, I need to get a large shake. And not just the large, but at Brahms, they had a 44-ounce shake. And let me just say for the record, there's no reason any single human being should ever eat 44 ounces of chocolate shake. It sh this should never happen. It should be against the law to even sell that, okay? Um, but I had already purposed in my heart, I, this is what I'm getting, and I'm going to chug the whole thing. I'm probably not going to even sip it like a human. I'm probably going to, like, chug it, like, like, I'm shotgunning this 44-ounce chocolate shake. And so I'm driving to go get my chocolate shake, and I'm frustrated, and I'm, and I'm doing, like, the Christian cursing thing where I'm going, you know, like Yosemite Sam used to do. And so I'm driving to, uh, and some of the college students are like, what's Yosemite Sam? Um, so I'm driving to Brahms, and I'm frustrated, and, and as clearly as God has ever spoken to me, I feel like God speaks to me and says, you are turning to ice cream with this problem instead of turning to the God of the universe. You have access to the God of the universe, but yet you're driving to take care of your problems, your emotional problems, with an ice cream. And I was so convicted. Because what I'd done at that moment is I realized that I was guilty of idolatry. Now, was I worshiping that? No. 
But what was happening is my affection was turned to something that wasn't bad, but I'd taken a good thing and made it ultimate. Because I said, I need to nurse this hurt and this pain. I need to get through it. What am I going to do? I'm going to lean on ice cream. And many of us do the same thing. We deal with disappointment. We deal with fear. We're walking through a season. We're trying to figure out what's going to happen. And the uncertainty leads us to idolatry. Maybe we shop when we're scared or when we're nervous, when we're unsure about the future. It's real easy to jump on Amazon. For a few years, I had an eBay habit. My wife had to help me break, right? Like, it's easy to, to nurse our, our insecurities and our fears with tangible things, tactile things in the world. But what that is, is idolatry. Because what we're doing is we're removing God from the equation. We're putting something else in its place. And we are all guilty of it at times. We're all guilty of, of taking God off the throne and putting something else in its place. And it, it is usually a good thing. It's not a bad thing, but that's what idolatry is, taking a good thing and making it supreme. And this is what we have to know about idols uh, as, it result, as it relates to fear. Idols lie. They claim that they have the power to help you, but they don't. They will overpromise and underdeliver every time in your life. They have no power to save, but they claim they do. See, God is the only God. The God we serve is the only one who gives us more than he takes away. Every other God you serve in your life will take and take and take more than it will give. It will tell you, oh, I'm going to ease your troubles, or I'm going to ease your pain, or I'm going to make you feel better. Whether it's that relationship, whether it's that substance, whether it's that, that, that thing we do, that action of, of shopping or buying or consuming, whatever it is, all those things promise us something that it cannot deliver on. The only God that can give us more than he will take is our Heavenly Father is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a passage of Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2 through 5. Let me read this to you. It says, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. He's saying, don't think like the world thinks. Think differently, because you're, you're my followers, because you're Christians. Think differently than the world thinks. In verse 3, it says, For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of the craftsman. Verse 4 says, They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have, uh, they have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. The idols we serve have no power. They have no authority. But yet we trust in them every single day to save us, to rescue us, to make us feel better. And that is not their function. The only one who can fulfill those functions in our life is God. The only one. But yet idolatry and fear ultimately leads us to idolatry, and idolatry leads us to disappointment over and over and over again. Because idols lie. The second thing we see is that idols ultimately will enslave you. This is what it says in 2 Kings chapter 17. This is from the New International Version, the NIV. It says this. It says they, and it's referring to the Israelites. And then when it says his, it's talking about God. So they rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. 
So what happened? God said, don't act like the world acts. Be separated, be uh, uh, consecrated, be different than the world is. Live differently, have different standards. Don't act like they act. Think differently. And then they go, okay, we'll do that. And then they did exactly what the world did. They lived like the world lived, and they took on idols. And it says, they didn't just take on idols, but it says they followed worthless idols, and then what happens? Themselves became worthless. I want you to catch this. We begin to resemble that which we worship. The thing you worship, you'll begin to resemble. Now, have you ever seen the couple that they've been married for 60 years and you, you know they belong together, right? Because the way they dress, the way they act, some of their mannerisms, you know that they belong together. Why? It's because um, the direction of our devotion and affection shapes our development. So the things we love, the things we care about, the things we worship, if I can say it like that, is, is what shapes us and develops us and, and creates our identity and who we become. That's why your parents used to th- say things like, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Did anybody have parents that said things like that? And it was usually in the context of your terrible friends, you know. Your friend would get in trouble, and they'd be like, I don't know why you hang around with them. Show me your friends. I'll show you your future. You're going to end up like that. If your friends jump off a cliff, you're going to jump off a cliff? Maybe, right? You were that kid. I was that kid sometimes. I wasn't brave enough to say it, but I thought it often. Maybe. Why? Because the direction of our devotion and affection shapes who we become and what we look like. So when we put an idol in front of us, it begins to shape us. It begins to mold us. It begins to to change who we become. So what we worship shapes what we become. We begin to resemble the very thing we worship. So when we worship worthless idols, guess what? We become worthless. When we set up an idol and we worship it as supreme, we begin to resemble that. So this is a negative thing, but it can also be a positive thing. Because if we worship a worthless idol and become worthless, what do you think happens when we worship the one true God who has limitless value? Guess what happens to you? You have limitless value in that one true God. You begin to to take on his image, begin to take on his character. The more you worship, the more you chase after, the more you pursue God, the more you begin to look like God. We resemble the things that we worship, and we have to understand that. Fear leads us to idolatry. If we're not careful, it happens. This is what it says in Isaiah 41, verse 8. So let me stop here. Verse, I haven't even read yet, but I'm going to stop there. So verse 7 is talking about idolatry. He's talking about the world. He's talking about um, what, what we will do if we're not careful with idols, that we'll begin to try to find our own way in the face of fear. And then it says in verse 8, it says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servants. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is such a powerful, important verse, uh, passage for us to read because God is trying to reestablish their identity because the nation of Israel had this identity, this identity crisis, if you will. They basically said, um, yes, we're God's chosen nation, but we reject God and we're going to worship false gods. 
And what God tries to do through the prophet Isaiah is help them see who they really are. And so he establishes this this lineage with Abraham and Jacob and and Israel. And he says, this is who you are. This is who your ancestors were. Uh, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen. Abraham was my friend. This is what you descend from. This is where you come from. He's trying to remind you. Again, because sometimes um, I would have conversations with my dad growing up, and and I would do something stupid, and he'd say, son, your name and and ultimately your reputation is the most valuable thing you have. And he would tell me about his father. I'm I'm the third, by the way. So I'm named after my dad who was named after his dad. And so there's there's a lineage here. There's a weight that comes with the responsibility of, hey, my father was a man of character and integrity, and his father was a man of character and integrity. And so my dad would remind me where I'd come from whenever I would do something stupid. He'd say, you know what your, your granddad was like? This is what he was like, and, and this is what I want for you, and this is what I see for you, and this is what God is doing here. He's trying to remind the nation of Israel where they've come from, what their lineage is, so that they can return back to it. And he goes on in verse 9, he says, you whom I took from the ends of the earth. So what he's saying is, I've reconciled you. As the nation of Israel would be scattered throughout the earth, he was going to reconcile them back and bring them back. And he said, and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Now, now, has anybody ever not been picked for something? Yes, you raise your hand for me. Has anybody ever not been picked for something? None of the athletes. All the athletes were like, I've been picked for everything. La-ti-da, right? No, I'm just kidding. There's been lots of things I haven't been chosen for. Um, Whether it was kickball in elementary school, for some reason they didn't want the chubby kid. I don't know why. That's cool. I could kick it further than everybody. I just couldn't get to first base sometimes, okay? So maybe it was kickball. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe you were somebody, you, you pined after someone, and they rejected you, and they chose someone else. Maybe it was that big promotion at work. You, were, you applied for it, you wanted it so bad, and they went with somebody else. You felt that sense of rejection. We've all faced rejection. We've all faced the moment where we weren't the ones that were chosen. But this is the incredible thing. God is reestablishing the identity of Israel, and he says, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. This is what God is saying. He's saying, you are chosen. No matter how many times you've been rejected in this world, no matter how many times you've been turned down, no matter how many times you've failed or lost or been disappointed, I am choosing you. You are chosen. If God had a a kickball league, a galactic kickball league, you were the first pick. He has chosen you. He wants you on his team. He wants you beside him. In fact, the Bible refers to the church as his bride. He has picked you. My wife could have married lots of guys, but she married me. And some of you are thinking, that poor girl, right? She chose me. That means something to me because she could have married anybody. But she chose me. God could have had anybody, but he chose you. You are chosen. You're not an afterthought. You have value today because you are chosen by the most high God. Verse 10, he gives instruction. I love this. He says, fear not. Why should we not fear not? Why should we not live in fear? And he says, fear not, for I am with you. This is so important to have someone with us, alongside of us. 
When I was a kid, I was afraid of the dark, and I liked to sleep in the bed with my sister. She was five years older than me, and she would scare me to death at night. She would do voices, and she would like try to scare me, um, but there's still something comforting about having her with me. Have you ever been through a difficult season of your life? Maybe your kids were doing crazy stuff. Maybe uh, you, you were facing a job loss or or a downturn in the economy, something was going on in your life, and you had a conversation with somebody, and they're talking to you, and they go, yeah, me too. You go, what? And they go, yeah, I've dealt with the exact same situation. You know, my kids did the same thing. This happened at my work, whatever it is. But just hearing somebody say, me too, it just made you feel better, didn't it? It just made you feel like I'm not in this thing alone. I don't have to deal with this difficulty and this fear, this pain by myself, because they're with me. They know what I've been through. And this is the, the cosmic, biblical equivalent of God saying, me too. He said, I'm with you. You're not in this thing alone. Whatever you're walking through in this life, I'm going to be with you. And there's something powerful and freeing and liberating about knowing that God is with us. He goes on to say, be not dismayed. So what's he saying? Be not dismayed. Don't, don't let yourself go crazy over your circumstance. Why? Because he says, for I am your God. He said, don't, don't respond the same way the world responds. All the people that serve false gods are going to respond a certain way. Don't respond like that. Do you know why? Because I am your God. It's different with me. He goes on to say, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. This is something you need to remind yourself of. When you're dealing with fear and you're wondering how you're going to make it, you need to remind yourself that God is the one who's speaking these words. And God says to you today, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. You need to remind yourself of that. Some of you need to write that down. You need to put it on the, the refrigerator at your house. You need to put it somewhere you're going to remember it because God is the one who strengthens us, helps us, and upholds us. But he doesn't just uphold this. I love this. It says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And this is really, really important because have you ever heard the phrase right-hand man? In business, they go, oh, he's my right-hand man. What they're really saying is this person has the authority of the boss. Now, they're not the boss, but they have the authority of the boss. And they, they function with that same level of authority and that same level of power. And that's why we see in Scripture that Jesus today is at the right hand of the Father making intercession on our behalf. So what does that mean? Jesus has the same authority as God. He's got the same power as God because he's at the right hand. Now, this is what God says to us. He will uphold us with his righteous right hand. So what God is saying is the right hand was representative of authority, power, and ownership. So what God says is my authority and my power and my ownership is extended to you. So the fear you're dealing with and the fear you're facing, you don't have to worry about because I'm going to uphold you with all the authority I have, all the power I have, and the ownership I have. Because I'm going to tell you something. God owns the whole enchilada. The whole thing is his. He created it. He breathed it into existence. And if he extends his authority to you, you are in good shape. He says, everything I've got is at your disposal because you are mine. And I'm extending my authority to you. I'm extending my power to you. By my, my righteous right hand, I will hold you up. One of the things that's interesting when we look at this too is a lot of times in Scripture you see the, the phrase Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the patriarchs of the Hebrew faith and, and Christian faith as well. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was a father, his son, and his grandson. And many times you see these names together. But here it says, uh, it says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So it refers to Abraham, Jacob, and Israel. But this is kind of confusing because Jacob and Israel are the same person. Now, it can be referring to the nation of Israel, but it could also be referring to 
the person of Israel. Now, let me, let me explain this. So Jacob was a guy, we've talked about him a little in the past, but he was a guy that um, from the, literally from birth, he was kind of shady. Um, he was born, and it was important to be the firstborn male in Hebrew culture because they were the ones who got the birthright. And so when Jacob was born, he was born with a twin, Esau. Esau was born first, but Jacob literally was holding on to Esau when Esau came out of the womb. So if you can imagine that, he's literally holding on to his foot as if he's trying to pull him back in to get a head start, right? Like this is, competition started early with these guys. And so they named him Jacob, which Jacob means supplanter. And another way you might be able to put it in common terms today is uh, shyster or con man or liar. So can you imagine naming your son liar? Well, here's my daughter Betty, and here's my son liar, right? So this is his name. This is his identity, supplanter. He grows, and his life is too, too complicated to get into right now. Um, you should read it. It's really good. So his life is super complicated, all kinds of twists and turns and things going on. And he has this encounter with God one day. And God says, you know what? You're not going to be called Jacob anymore. We're not going to call you supplanter anymore. You're not a liar. You're not a shyster. You're not a con man. That's not who you are. Your name is going to be Israel. Israel means triumphant with God or one who triumphs with God. That's what your name is now. So I'm changing your identity from Jacob to Israel. And that's so important for us to know that God changes our identities, right? We're going to be looking at that in the next few weeks. We'll be talking about some of this. But this is what I want us to see. It says here, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen. I think God does this on purpose because I really believe God wants us to catch this, that, that yes, he changed his identity from Jacob to Israel. But before he changed his identity, he was chosen. He's saying here, you know what? When you were Jacob the shyster, Jacob the con man, Jacob the liar, I still chose you then. I loved you before you cleaned yourself up, before you got your junk together and you became the one who, who overcame with God's power. I loved you then. And this is something we have to understand because some of us don't feel worthy of God's love. And we are not worthy of God's love. What Todd said earlier was 100% on the money. That, that we aren't valuable because uh, of who we are, but we're, we're valuable because God loves us. And so what God has done is he says, hey, I love you. Even when you're a shyster, even when you're a con man, when you're a Jacob, I love you. But my love is going to help transform you into Israel. And so today some of you are here and you don't feel worthy. You don't feel like you're worthy of God's love or his mercy. But I want you to know that you are because he loves you. He's passionate about you. And he's changing your name. He's changing your identity. And he loves you even before your identity was changed. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 11 says this, Behold, all who are incensed against you. Listen to this. If you got opposition, you should be encouraged by this. Behold, all who are incensed against you, you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you, you shall, uh, shall be nothing at all. Listen to this, verse 13. For I, the Lord, Hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. So this is where God flips the script. He just said, I'm going to uphold you with my mighty right hand. But what does he come back and say? But he says this, I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. So what happens when fear comes our way? What happens when uncertainty comes our way? God extends his righteous right hand and upholds us with that. But then we respond and extend our right hand. You go, Mel, what in the world does that mean? Well, in the same way that God extends his authority and his power to us and says it is at your disposal, what we do, our response to this is to go, God, everything I've got is yours. All my authority, 
all, all of my perceived power, all of my talent, all of my giftings, all of my failures, all of my junk, everything I have is yours. How do we overcome fear in our lives? By trusting deeply in God and saying, God, everything I've got is yours. I trust you. I'm going to extend my right hand to you and trust in you. Why can we do that? Because he is the only one who helps us. Fear not. I am the one who helps you. See, allowing God to be an authority doesn't limit us. It actually frees us to live the life that he's dreamed for us to live. I'm going to skip a few verses down to verse 17. It says this. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights, the fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the, in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. Listen to this in verse 20. That they may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created this. So when we're in the, the midst of a dry season, when we're afraid of what's to come, when we're looking at the unknown, when we're, we're trying to fix it on our own, we're running to all of our false gods and all of our idols, and we're trying to, to figure out what's going to happen, God, God says, trust me, extend to me your right hand. I'm going to extend my right hand to you and trust me because I'm going to cause springs to pop up in the middle of the desert. I'm going to cause abundance to flow in the place where it seems like there's lack. And I'm going to do it for my glory. God says, I'm going to work a miracle in your life, and it's going to be so the world can see how good I am. God wants to use your situation for his glory. He wants the world to see how good he is through your situation if you'll trust him with it. And that's the question today. Will you trust him with it? Will you take his right hand with yours? Will you extend your right hand to him and say, God, you are God. Here is everything I've got. Take it and use it for your glory. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you. And I'm so grateful that you love us. That God, we can't live this life on our own. We can't function. We can't move forward without you. And God, I'm thankful that when fear comes, Lord, there's temptation to run to other places. But God, I thank you that you are a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That, Lord, you are the one who will uphold us and sustain us. You are the one who will help us navigate our fear in a godly way, in a way that will ultimately bring you glory. So, God, I pray for this place right now. God, I pray that you would take away fear, replace it with faith. 